So you got to be able to separate the truth from fiction. And you can't be afraid for fear that your little sacred rug is going to be pulled out from under you. You have to be strong and desirous of truth, a disciplined learner, a disciplined follower, so that you can be a disciplined teacher and help people separate the lies from the truth because the lies put you in bondage, the truth makes you free. Shalom, saints, and welcome to our verse-by-verse study of the book of Genesis. I'm your host and teacher, Arthur Bailey. For 12 years, five kingdoms served the king of Elam. In the 13th year, Sodom and the four other kingdoms rebelled. In the 14th year, the king of Elam made war with them and took all their goods and victuals along with Lot, Abram's nephew, and all his goods. When Abram was informed of Lot's capture, Abram activated his army of 318 trained servants. Abram had trained them to fight, and now he arms them for battle. Today's study title is Sodom, Gomorrah, and Lot. So, let's study. So we're going to be talking about Sodom, Gomorrah, and Lot. And we're in chapter number 14 of Genesis. And so we're going to pick up in verse 1. And instead of reading those verses, we'll just go through verse by verse and share a little bit as we go through them. In verse 1 of Genesis 14, And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, Shador Laomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, that these made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and with Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admah, and Zimabah, king of Zebuin, and the king of Bela, which is Zoar. Now, in this very first verse, it shows us that there are four kings that are going to be coming against these other five kings. And so when we think about Sodom and Gomorrah, we think about this battle that took place in that region whereby Lot was captured. Now, later on, we know that Sodom and Gomorrah is going to experience a special visit, but we're not there yet. But in verse 1 here, it lets us know that these kings is coming, and each of these kings is over a particular geography. Except the last king here, it says king of nations. And so it doesn't give the name of a particular city, but it says that this king is the king of nations. Now, that word nation is the word goe or goeen, where we get the a people. It's the word people. So here we have, and a little bit of, of research revealed that this particular 
king was not over so much a region as much as it was over a people who were somewhat nomadic. And so these people moved around, but their allegiance was with title. And so these made war. Now, the leader of this group is Shedoleomer. He's the king of Elam. And Elam, if you were to look on a map geographically, is in the region where Babylon is. Now, so what you see is that Elam is in the region where Babylon or Babel was located, and these kings came all the way from the land of (laughs) Babylon, uh, which is near where Abram had already sojourned from, and came down to make war with this group of individuals that was in what we know today as Israel. But it wasn't Israel at the time. It was Canaan, and it was the land of the Canaanites and the Hamites. Of course, Canaan was the fourth son of Ham. And so this was the land of the descendants of Ham that these particular kings came down to fight against. And what I tried to do is find this map, as you can see, that the Persian Gulf over to the right of the screen in the red is where they came from. And then if you look to the left of the screen, you'll see the Mediterranean Sea and you'll see the land of Israel and the green lettering there, which is, I know, difficult to read. It was a map that I found, but it was small and to stretch it, it gets all out of proportion. And so I try to give you a some kind of idea geographically. Now, all that gray is what we would know as uh, Saudi Arabia. All that gray between the red and the blue Persian Gulf and then over to the green, white lettering and the Mediterranean Sea because you'll see at the bottom left is the Red Sea. And then... (laughs) There's a little blue line, which is the Sea of Galilee down to the Dead Sea. But all you got to do is Google Elam Shedder Leomer, and it'll kind of give you an idea of where Elam is. Now, in previous maps, during the time of the dividing of the nations, we showed some maps, and it showed us where the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth migrated. And so, here, verse 3, all these were joined together in the vale of Sidim. And this is a valley, which is the Salt Sea. Now, here in Genesis, it is the Salt Sea, but we know it today as the Dead Sea. It is the lowest place on earth, I believe it's some 1,300 feet below sea level or something of that nature. And here in Genesis 14, is called the Salt Sea, but we know it as the Dead Sea. And here's a, another map. Uh, you can kind of see that a little bit better. And you'll find the land. This is the Dead Sea up at the top. 
the Jordan River pours into the Dead Sea and it goes all the way up to beyond the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee. And so it's the Jordan River, the Jordan River there. And so it pours into the Dead Sea. At the bottom there, you will see Sodom around the Dead Sea. You will see Zoar, Atmar at the bottom, Sodom, Gomorrah, and Zebuim, both at the top and the bottom. And so what you have is you have these people who are somewhat tribal that are uh, scattered out. And these were individuals that had made an alliance with Cheddar Leomer. And so they served Chedorlaomer for 12 years, but the Bible says in the 13th year, they rebelled. In other words, they no longer wanted to serve this particular king. And part of this servicing the king meant that they not only paid homage, they paid taxes, the produce of the land, whatever the land generated, the resources from the land, they supported this king. And so when they rebelled, the rebellion indicated that they stopped paying the taxes. They stopped paying the tribute money. And so this took place in the 13th year. And in the 14th year, the king decided that he would pay a visit. Now, here's where it's important for us to pay a little bit of attention to because I showed the map to indicate the distance from which these kings came in order to come against the subjects that stopped paying the tribute money. And so for 12 years, Barak, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admar, and Shimaber, king of Zebuim, and the king of Bela, which is Zor, all served Chedorlaomer, king of Elam. But in the 13th year, they rebelled against him. So in the 14th year, Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, made war with them and smote them. Now, that particular verse seems as if, okay, these guys were right next door. <laughs> but they were a long ways from next door. And I wanted you to pay attention to this because there's some information here that would be very, very important as we get into next week's teaching. And that is, and in the 14th year, he came, Chedo, Leomer, and the kings that were with him. Now, in the process of coming, they went through a lot of lands before they reached their destination. And in the process of going through these lands and through these tribes and through these villages and through these kingdoms, the Bible says they smote the people. This is what it says here in verse number five. And in the 14th year came Chedor, Leomer, and the kings that were with him, and he smote the Rephaims. Now, the Rephaims is similar to the Nephilims. They were giants. That word Rephaim is they were giants, similar to the Nephilims. And the Rephaims, we're going to uh, deal with a little bit later because 
Many, many years later, after Israel comes out of captivity, comes down to the land, and they send their spies into the land, they're going to see some Rephaims. They're going to see giants. And they say, we look like, what? Grasshoppers in their sight. So it's like a little people looking at a big people. But the word Rephaim means giant, but it, if you don't look up that word, and if it's not a key word, <laughs> you won't even pay attention to it. But that's what it means. In Ashtaroth, Karnaim, and the Zuzims in Ham, and the Emims in Shava, Kiriathim. Now, when these four kings are coming down to do battle with five kings, they destroy kingdoms in the wake of, in the process. And as they are destroying these kingdoms, guess what they're doing? They're taking stuff. They're taking the spoils. They're taking slaves. They're taking men, women, children, animals, gold, silver, goods, everything. And then think about this. The slaves they take and the goods they take, they make the slaves carry the goods. So it's easy. It's not like they're taking stuff and having to carry it while they're going off to war. They got servants, goods, victuals, animals, the spoils of the city, whatever gold, whatever silver, whatever precious metal they take with them. But this is just the beginning. As I said, the Rephaims or Repha, they're giants, and they're the old race of giants. These are the giants that Noah, the Bible, refers to. There were giants before the flood, and there were giants after the flood. But giants or not, Chedor Leomer and his, and his boys wipe about, of course, he don't wipe them all out, but he certainly wipe out all the ones that are, and it's not like all the Raphaim stayed in one, in one area. They were scattered out over the land, just as you see in the map I showed you. Uh, you got Sodom, and Sodom is a broad piece of land, and Gomorrah is a broad piece of land, and you got Zeboim on both the south and the north of the Salt Sea or the Dead Sea. So they're scattered all over, very much like the 12 tribes will be when they get in the land, and they're not all in one location. They're scattered all over the land. So. Verse 6, and the Horites in their Mount Seir unto El Paran, which is by the wilderness. And they returned and came to Enmishpat, which is Kadesh, and smote all the country of the Amalekites and the Amorites that dwelt in Hazazon, Tamar. And so, what I wanted to point out here is before Cheddar Leomer arrived to battle the kings that are aligned with Sodom and Gomorrah, they had already smote and carried away the spoils from the Rephaims and Ashtaroth, Karnaim, the spoils from the Zuzims and Ham, 
the spoils from the Emims in Shava Kiriathim, the Horites, their spoil in their Mount Seir unto El Paran, which is by the wilderness, the spoils of all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites that dwelt in Hazazan Tamar. So long before they get to Sodom, Gomorrah, and all the spoils there, they've already wiped out villages, pillaged, killed. All these kings and lands were smitten and pillaged before Chedorlaomer got to the Vale of Siddim, which is the Salt Sea. And then in verse 8, And there went out the king of Sodom, and the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Admah, and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, the same as Zoar. And they joined battle with them in the Vale of Siddim. Now, the Vale of Siddim, as we're going to see here in a moment, they fight with Chedorlaomer, the king of Elam, and with Tidal, king of nations, and Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar. So there's four kings who came down to fight with five kings in the land. So there's five kingdoms on top of all the kingdoms they had already pillaged. Now, again, I want to point out this map because the veil, down at the very bottom, the veil, the word there is, is like a valley. So they now all join to do battle in this valley. And the Vale of Siddim was full of slime pits. It's like tar pits. And if you've gone to the Dead Sea, or here it's called the Salt Sea, you can actually encounter some of these in certain areas, especially near the Jordan side. Because understand that the Salt Sea or the Dead Sea by its location on one end of the Salt Sea and then on the, the portion south, north, and toward the Mediterranean is the land of Israel. And so the portion of Jordan, um, the Salt Sea is in Jordan. So the Salt Sea portion of it is in the land of Jordan and a great deal of it is in the land of Israel. Now what's interesting is the Israelis figured out long before the Jordanians how to capitalize on the Salt Sea. And so the excavation of the Salt Sea, the removal of salt and mud, the packing, I mean, you know, the products that come from the Salt Sea go all over the world. And there is the wonder as to why the resources of the Salt Sea is is drying up to where the Salt Sea continues to move further and further inland away from hotels that were built all around it to where now there was a time several years ago if you were to go to the Dead Sea, you would come out of your hotel and there's a short walk 
to the Dead Sea. Now you got to get a shuttle because it's so far away. And it's continually, it says, drying up. But um, before the excavation, before the removal of the minerals and the products, the sales, and even um, quiet as it's kept, the Jordanians have accused Israel of removing more than its share of minerals and resources <laughs> from the Salt Sea or the Dead Sea. But the technology was much more advanced to be able to remove these minerals, jar them up, bottle them up, package them up. And now they're some of the most expensive and the most salt after products all over the world. And so in the Vale of Siddim was full of slime pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. They ran and fell there, and they that remained fled to the mountain. So what you have here is that now these four kings that came down to fight these five kings have successfully defeated them, and as it is the Norm, you take the goods. Chedo, Leomer, and the kings with him defeated the five kings, and this is what they took all their goods and victuals. Now, it's important that we look at what is here because, again, as we get into next week, I'm going to be sharing some things. Some of that is already in this particular teaching, to tithe or not to tithe. In chapter 2, well, I think it's chapter 2. It's the second part of what is in this. And this curriculum that we're developing to tithe or not to tithe, everything that you want to know concerning tithing is in this particular curriculum. And we start or we use a portion of what we're going to be dealing with last next week that is taken from this actual battle. It clears up a lot of the confusion, but here it says, notice the kings took all their goods and victuals. Now, the goods are separate from the victuals, and that's important for us to note. But along with that, they took Lot, and that should be a capital L, and all his goods. Now, if you remember, Lot had so much possession and servants that he had to part with Abraham because the land could not support them all. What Lot had alone, that in itself was a good take. If you were to look at it, it was a shipload. It was, it was enough for a small army, if you would. So the land couldn't support them. And, and we find that if we go back to Genesis 13, it says, And Lot also, which went with Abraham, had flocks and herds and tents. And then in verse 6, And the land was not able to bear them that they might dwell together, for their substance was great, so that they could not dwell together. And so we see that Lot had flocks and herds and tents, 
But it wasn't the flocks, the herds, and the tents that was at odds with each other. It was their herdsmen. So Lot had herdsmen. Lot had herdsmen. Lot's herdsmen had family, women, children. So there's a lot going on just with Lot. That was a mother load all by itself. And they took, verse 11, all the goods, and that goods is possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their victuals, and their victuals was the food supply. So all the animals that had been slaughtered, all the, the land that had been uh, harvested, everything in the city, food, possessions, tents, human beings, because we're going to learn next week that when Abram goes to rescue them, that he not only, and you got to get this, because the whole point of laying out the travel and the pillaging that took place long before they got to Sodom, Gomorrah, and Lot's goods and possessions, they'd already taken goods. They'd already taken victuals. They'd already taken human beings. And so when Abram goes, as we're going to see, to rescue, he defeats them and then take all the stuff they've taken. <laughs> I'm telling you, this is huge, folks. And so, and they took all the goods, possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their victuals and food supply and went their way. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's, a, it's just another day's work. <laughs> and they took Lot. Now, that was the mistake they made. If they left Lot alone, they could have kept the stuff. Sometimes you got to know when enough's enough. Now, notice the thing, because the language has a tendency to change up. And they took Lot, Abram's brother's son. That would make Lot Abram's nephew. But when Abram and Lot has this conversation, he says, we're brothers. And so there's some interchange. And then next week, we're going to look at, it goes beyond brethren to where brothers, the actual word. And they took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods. So they got all of those king's goods. They got Sodom and Gomorrah's king's goods. And they got Lot's goods and all of his possession. And Abram was informed of Lot's capture. Now, this is what moved Abram, not the fact that Lot, Sodom and Gomorrah had gone down in battle, is Abram's relationship with his son, with his brother's son, was what caused Abram. But I, I found something to be fascinating in these next verses. And there came one that had escaped and told Abram the Hebrew. Now here we find this word Hebrew is used for the first time. And as we've discussed in previous lessons up until this point, that if the word Hebrew is being used for the first time, then the first time it's mentioned is where we would get an idea of how it is used going forward. Now, Abram is a descendant, 
if you would, of who? Ibri. And so we've got two words in the Tanakh, the Old Testament, that we get the word Hebrew because Ibri, the word Hebrew, comes from Ibri, but it's also used here. And in both of those cases, there's a similarity in the definition. And it's here is one from beyond. Ibri is one who crosses over. So one who crosses over, one from beyond. And so oftentimes when you deal with individuals who want to identify as Hebrew or try to define Hebrew, it is one who crosses over or one from beyond. The question that we asked a few times is beyond what? Do we cross over Jordan? Now, of course, people take it into the spirit language conversation, and that is crossing over from Christianity to the Hebrew roots or crossing over from a former religion to, you know, the Jewish roots. But it generally indicates one who was not in truth before, regardless to what religion they were, who have come into the truth of the Hebrew roots. But the language in itself suggests one from beyond. And if we use for Abram, then now we can track back to the beyond from whence he came. And the beyond from whence he came was from beyond the Euphrates, because he was where? From Ur of the Chaldees, which is beyond the Euphrates. But then, as we've been taking this journey, because Abram was given some promises, and we talked about the promises of Abram, where Abram was given land, and then later on in Genesis, we're going to see that the land that Abram is given is from the Euphrates to the great river in Egypt, which is the Nile River. The Euphrates to the Nile. And then Father told Abram, wherever your feet have tread. Now, when we look at from where he came, Abram came from beyond the Euphrates. So his feet tread from the Euphrates. He went up into Egypt. And so everywhere Abram's feet went was seemingly the land Father gave him. From the Euphrates where he came all the way into Egypt, the great river Nile, where he went, and there he became very wealthy with gold and silver, and then he came back into the land in which he had been dwelling before the famine that caused him to go up. Abram also made relationships. Verse 13, And there came one that had escaped and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt in the plain of Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Eshcol, and the brother of Aner, and these were confederate with Abram. In other words, these were individuals who dwelt in the same land. These were individuals that seemingly had relationship. They, they were comrades, uh, brothers in arms, if you would. We don't know the degree of the relationship but we know this word, confederate, indicate that they had relationship, and that relationship could be that they dwelt in the same land as neighbors, had 
business dealings with one another, and possibly even assisted Abram in the recapturing of Lot and his family. But then there's something else. This next verse gives us a glimpse of Abram's company. You see, Abram had an army of trained servants. In fact, the Bible says there was 318. Now, I don't know about you, brothers and sisters, but that's a lot of men. These are the ones that were trained to fight. That's not all the men. These were the ones trained to fight. It gets me to thinking that Abram was not just a peacemaker, but Abram was one who seemed to go to the length of training his servants for a battle that may never happen. Because he didn't train them after Lot was taken. Verse 14, and when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, now notice this, when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, and what you find here is the language, whereas by the time we get to Jacob, Jacob takes his grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and elevate them to the status of sons, to where now they have equal inheritance to all of his other sons. Ephraim and Manasseh get something his son Levi doesn't get. And what is that? Tribal land. There's the land of Ephraim. There's the land of Manasseh. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in Sabbath's teaching because we're going to be talking about Jacob's well and the Samaritans. Jacob's well and the Samaritans as we're going into John chapter number four. And we're going to make that connection. But here, and when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants. He didn't train them. He armed them. Now, any of you have ever watched Movies where, let's say there's a national emergency or individuals who are in a particular zone or a war zone where there's been a breach, you'll find even in the, in the sheriff's office, the police station, those of you who've watched, that weapons are seemingly kept in a particular place until there's some kind of breach or, or, or threat or whatever and there's a drill, the sirens go off, everybody know where to go, they're armed, and then they're ready and geared up to go to, to battle. What this verse indicates to me is that Abram has spent the time training them for battle. And I suspect that from the time he left Ur of the Chaldee, went up to Haran, that all of his servants, those born in his house, and this is what it says here. Because remember, when Abram was given the instruction for circumcision, the instruction for circumcision was for those 
who he had bought with money and them that was born in his house. So the males who were bought with money and them that was born in his house. Now, what's interesting is that Abram doesn't have any children at this point. So these are not children born to Abram where we would typically get the idea of being born in one's house. These were individuals that were part of Abram's entourage. It could have been those who he had bought with money, who he had now allowed to marry or whatever, who had children. But the bottom line is that these individuals were individuals that were born in Abram's house. And, and so their allegiance was to whom? Was to Abram. Now imagine trying to arm men and women that you've just destroyed their land, destroyed their villages, destroyed their homes, destroyed everything, and taken them captive as slaves. <laughs> There's a difference between those individuals and the ones who is in allegiance with you. And so this language, those born in his house, seems to separate out others. And I dare say that he didn't take women into battle. He took armed, trained servants born in his house. 318. And we're going to close here. And he pursued them unto Dan. Now, what's important here is Abram has a son. What's Abram's first son name? Ishmael. What is Abram's second son name? Isaac. Isaac has two sons. What's their names? Esau and Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. Name them. No. <laughs> But one of them's name is Dan. Now get this. There is no Ishmael and there is no Isaac. Thus, there is no Jacob. Thus, there is no Dan. But here, Abram pursues these individuals unto Dan. Doesn't make sense, does it? <laughs> you lost something. You, yeah. Well, what has happened here is is Dan was not given the name Dan until the days of Judges. And so what you have here is what is called editorial updating. In other words, the translators are inserting this land was not called Dan at the time, but by the time this is written, it's like, okay, the land that Abram pursued these individuals with, today that land is the land of Dan. But at the time, it wasn't Dan. Now, accurately, if we were to try to research this on the map today, it would be called the land of Dan. But there was no such thing as the land of Dan during the time of Abram because Isaac had not been born, Jacob had not been born, nor any of his sons. And here in Judges, Chapter 18, verse 29, the designation here is what is called. So in Judges 18, it says, And they called the name of the city Dan after the name of Dan their father, who was born unto Israel. 
Howbeit, the name of the city was Laish at the first. So why didn't he just say he pursued them unto Laish? Yeah, but there are other lands, there are other things where it doesn't do that. It'll tell you that the former name of it was this and now it's this. But it doesn't do that here. And these are the kinds of things that as you're reading and you're paying attention to or you're thinking or you're asking questions, they called it Dan. Now, wait a minute. How, where did they get the name Dan from? Well, <laughs> we know where they got the name from, but he hadn't been born yet. So how can they call it Dan now? And again, it's editorial type of updating. And these kinds of things, they happen in the Bible. That's why as we've been going through Genesis and as we'll go through other books of the Bible, and I point out that, listen, everything is not in chronological order, folks. We can't read the Bible always in chronology. We have to search for the chronology in order to put pieces together. And this is what the scholars have supposedly done to try to get us an accurate rendering of the historical data put in its proper place. But we already know from day one that the books of the Bible are not in chronological order. But you would never know that if somebody didn't point it out to you. It's like, why is Malachi the last book of the Bible when it's not the last book of the Bible? And who decided what order, what book goes, and what was the process of making the decision to put them in that order? And when you begin to talk and point these things out, there are people whose foundations are not solid in the first place. They think that you're trying to undo the work and you're destroying the book. It's not destroying the book, brothers and sisters. It's looking at the book with honest eyes. That's what it is. Because once you see it, then now you can see where any potential manipulation has been done. And once you can identify that, then you can begin to remove the works and the hand of man and get down to the actual truth because you don't have to be a rocket scientist or road scholar to know Christmas is not in the Bible. It's not there. But you can't tell a great deal of Christians that. Those are fighting words. And we know that Easter was inserted but the insertion of a word and then it being taught for centuries and centuries to where great, great, great grandmama, you know, made something and it's an Easter tradition. It's an heirloom. She made it because of Easter and her relationship with, you know, or whatever, and it's passed down from generation to generation and treated as something sacred. And so to address that thing would be to address the history of a family for generations and to try to make it 
worthless, you're affecting generations of faith, you see. And if that was a lie, have our entire foundation been a big lie? And the young ones are saying, yep, we've been trying to tell you. (laughs) But it's not all a lie. And so you got to be able to separate the truth from fiction. And you can't be afraid for fear that your little sacred rug is going to be pulled out from under you. You have to be strong and desirous of truth, a disciplined learner, a disciplined follower, so that you can be a disciplined teacher and help people separate the lies from the truth because the lies put you in bondage. The truth makes you free. That's just the reality. Judges 18.9 again, it was called Laish at the first. And then 14.15, and he divided himself against them, he and his servants by night, and smote them and pursued them unto Hobar, which is on the left hand of Damascus. I thought I was done, but obviously I wasn't. And then verse 16, I think this is where I come to a conclusion. Now notice that verse 16, and he brought back all the goods. Now, that verse will leave one with the impression that he brought back all the goods of Lot. And he brought back all the goods and also brought again his brother Lot and his goods. So now we broaden it out to, okay, Sodom and Gomorrah's goods. It was all, all the goods and his brother's Lot and his goods and the women. What women? The women of Lot, the women of Sodom and Gomorrah, the women that was taken captive from other places, and the people. And here is a little bit of a geography of the travel. These four kings up at the upper right-hand corner with the hash mark lines, they come, but that line doesn't show how far they come. If you follow those lines, you'll follow those lines all the way across uh, modern-day Syria, modern-day Iran, modern-day Iraq, and, you know, that's coming down through Lebanon and Jordan, across uh, Saudi Arabia. I mean, you got all of this travel that they've come from, and then they've come and made their way down to destroy some of these other kingdoms, come up through and take Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah and destroy all these kings. They fled gathered all these goods, come back up around. Abram gets the word. Abram goes and pursue them and catches them up, up in there to number seven. That's upward towards Syria and the road to Damascus or Damascus. And so he pursues them up and he catches them up. In, that's a lot of ground to cover. And I'm telling you, this is a huge group of people and a lot of spoil because they're going through lands and I suspect they weren't asking permission if we could come through. (laughs) 
I don't think they were asking permissions. I think they were just taking territory. I mean, included in these goods were women and people, were all the spoils that Chedo Leomer and the kings with him had gathered from all the kings and the lands that they had gone to battle with and overcame. And so these goods included people, gold, silver, sheep, goat, cattle, clothes, weaponry, goods, and food supply. I mean, there is sandals and armor and you name it. And I just put sheep, goat, and cattle, but probably fowl and other, you know, beasts of burden, donkeys and camels, and, and you name it. There's a lot of stuff going on here. And when we get into Abraham and giving a tenth of all of this next week, we're going to begin to kind of lay out and hopefully help people get a better grasp of what took place when Abram met Malik Sadiq or Melchizedek. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. You can find more inspirational teachings and download our free ebooks on our ministry website at arthurbaileyministries.com. Please follow us on Facebook at House of Israel Arthur Bailey Ministries, on Instagram at Apostle Arthur Bailey, on Twitter at Apostle Bailey, and you can subscribe to our YouTube page at Apostle Arthur Bailey One. If you're in the Charlotte area, please come and fellowship with us. We'll do our best to make you feel right at home. Our address is on our website at the About link under Contact Us. Again, thank you for joining us, and until next time, Shalom Saints.